And the one thing that it's really worth saying, never underestimate the value of knowing how communities work because it's been a constant point of difference between me and other people who might have done some of the jobs I've done. This is Life on the Land, a Gracie Her podcast telling stories of women living in rural, regional and remote Australia. I'm Sky Manson, your host for this episode. Welcome back for another season. This is our ninth. Can you believe it? We've found that if you care to look or ask under the leaves of the lives of the people that walk the main streets of our rural, regional and rural towns, there is such huge diversity to be found. Stories of wonderful childhoods played out in various different lights and influences beautiful passions quietly simmering away in the safe spaces of the homes. But we have found there can also be tragedy and struggles, illness, addiction, even violence and mental ill health. And the same could be said for our leaders, advocates and influencers. And this is what we really try and share with you here on Life on the Land, the true deeper story of how someone came to be the person they are today. This notion is certainly true for Wendy McCarthy AO, who has a list of achievements and involvements too long to mention them all. She was the founding member of the Women's Electoral Lobby and continues to be an advocate for women. She's held so many significant leadership roles in key national and international bodies, including the Deputy Chair of the ABC, Chancellor of the University of Canberra, Chair of Headspace and Chair of Australia's leading circus, Circus Oz, and so many more things. But her life as a child was difficult, and she learned to be tough and bold against the domestic situations that threatened to arise as a result of her father's alcoholism. In our conversation today, Wendy offers some very sage advice on leadership and how to change the rules. Do persist with your listening. And there is to end a word from her on respect. I wanted to take you back to the beginning of our conversation where I asked her what she's working on at the moment and what her main and most important focus is generally. Well, I I think we learn, you know, from a very early age. We learn to laugh, we learn to cry, we learn to smile. Um, I think we need to know how to measure risk in terms of the things we do. It might be jumping over a puddle when we're little. It might be deciding, you know, in my case, I didn't know I was doing it, but being left-handed and my father being brought to the kindergarten to say, fix this child, you know, she's not. she refuses to write with her right hand. And... Did I instinctively know there was a risk? There was a risk if my father was called to the kindergarten that I'd done something terribly wrong. And was it wrong that I was left-handed? And he reaffirmed that, no, it was okay for me to be left-handed and the school and the system could go jump. And in a sense, when I was applying for a teacher's scholarship 16 years, or no, 14 years later, and they said I couldn't be a teacher because I was writing with my left hand and the children wouldn't be able to understand it on, on the board. 
And I stood there and said, well, when you move across the board, you move to the right and the left, the writing from the left hand becomes clear. I was making it up as I went, but actually that's what got me through. And so it was a risk that I wouldn't get a teacher's college scholarship. Um, and a lot of people didn't if they were left-handed, if, if they didn't find a way to be able to stand their ground. And of course, you know, being a young sexual woman, it's a risk um, to have unprotected sex. But it's also a risk if you went to, like in my generation, you went to the family doctor and you asked for contraception. If you weren't being married and didn't have a marriage date, he probably wouldn't give it to you. It was almost always he. And that you couldn't be entirely sure that he wouldn't be telling your mother over mm. a few drinks. And do you take a risk on a love affair and get married? Do you take a risk and have children? And there's risks in work. And somehow or other, I've, you know, I've been thinking about it a lot when I've been out on the road talking to people and trying to explain it more. I looked at Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins and they took high risks. Grace Tame talked about sexual abuse and she used her position as Australian of the Year to do that. And everyone knew when they were choosing her that's what she would do. But most people probably still had an intake of breath when she talked about it. That gave Brittany Higgins the courage to talk about what had happened to her in Parliament House. And it then gives, it has a knock-on effect of creating a pathway where people are saying, okay, so it's public. Well, I can't be shamed anymore because I'm taking control of it myself. So risk is about how you exercise control and exercise the best pathway for you. When I was writing the Cleo column, which I did for 10 years, everything was about, will I have sex with this boy? Um, will he love me? Uh, when should I do it? And no one, and most of them weren't asking about how to get contraception. And I was writing back and saying, no, you don't, I'm very in favour of risk. I didn't use that language then. But no, you don't do that unless you've been to family planning and you've, had, you've got some contraception. Because the, the lives of young women were shattered. And when those women disappeared, especially at university, they just did, were off the campus. And hmm. then we found out they'd had an unplanned pregnancy and most often a baby. Hmm. I didn't so know that. I found that so sad that they just, they really did just, that was the end of their life. Yeah. Their life. Yeah. They became someone else's. Um, I love it that you have mentioned Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame and also um, Virginia Tapscott has been a guest on this Life on the Land podcast. Uh, another, you know, young female who's trying to um, bring more light to sexual abuse and um, de-shock it. And I, I'd like to, I wonder what you think about that in all elements of the female vernacular is that if anyone um, were to go against the grain, it was just so shocking. And have you seen over time that people have been successful in taking the shock away by bringing light to things, if that makes sense? No, it does make sense. And I can remember my father had a big problem with alcohol and I can remember walking down the street in Forbes when I was at the high school and, you know, one afternoon we were allowed to go out and get a milkshake, which is a very big deal. And th this boy, and I was always anxious about that because, uh, 
depending which day of the week it was, because one day of the week my father would usually go to town. And if it was a bad day, I might see him lying about, and mm. I, I hated that. But and I, and this wasn't a day when that happened. But this boy who was walking with me, we were walking past the hotel where he often was, and he said, "Anyway, your father's a drunk." And I just said, "So," and he went, "Oh." And suddenly, I owned it. Mm. No one was going to make me responsible for my father's drinking. How could I? I was twelve years old. And I think Grace owns her space and so does Brittany. And, and I know when I had an unplanned pregnancy, I didn't share it with anyone except Gordon. You know, we, we had an unplanned pregnancy for years and years and years. And then I owned it by putting my name in the paper with 79 other women and saying to the cops, we all have all had illegal abortions. You want to you want to, um, do what the act says, and enforce your um, judicial responsibilities, mm -hmm. and take us all to prison. Not one of us was approached, and that was a huge. It sounds pathetic in a way, but it was a huge triumph because it was the beginning of the breakthrough into taking control of reproductive rights of women. It was a very long journey, 50 years in my case, that I campaigned around that. But something liberating happened when we owned, if it was a mistake of a moment in our lives that didn't turn out the way we expected, we took the responsibility for it and, in, and no one was going to shame us afterwards. But I went through, you know, went to lots of doctors and had I think two babies before I ever even acknowledged that I had an abortion to anyone. And then I put it in the paper. My mother didn't appreciate it, I can have to say, but uh, you know, that's, that's how it was. Tell me about your childhood, which of course was rural, not in Sydney where you are now. Um, you were born in Orange, but you grew up at a little tiny place called Garima, which is sort of near Grenfell and Forbes. Yes. Um, well, I was born in Orange and um, my, my father in 1941, and my father was away at the war. Um, well, he, he didn't actually go leave Australia, but he was, you know, he was um, enlisted. And my mother travelled with me and with him a bit around New South Wales because wives were permitted to do that. Um, but she was very young, she was 18. And I went to a little preschool in Orange and then I, I left there when I was seven. So I had an early time there and that, that was a relatively happy time in my family. And I think then we went to Goulburn to um, my father managed a property out of Goulburn and a big sheep station and then we came, he got a soldier settlement block and we came to live at Garima. And Garima was really a wheat siding town and my father started life. He'd come from a property in Canamble, that was his background. And so I had a really happy rural childhood. I mean, although I was seven years in Orange and we might call that regional now, the fact is, you know, we had a little cottage. My grandparents had their own orchard in the same street up the road, went to Pony 
club on every Saturday morning and you you know you'd sort of clomp out of the riding school down the almost the main street one street off the main street with the pony and the pony was often allowed to stay the night on Saturday night um, in the backyard so it was a completely different life from the lives of my children who fall about hysterical when I say this and I rode a pony or a bike to school so it was it was really until I went to high school, you know, it was a very free life and, you know, I could be lying around my house reading books at home or, or riding horses. Is that what you love to do? Books and yeah. horses? Yes, yeah, so we went to Pony Club and did that. Rode in the show a few times. And what was what was home life like and your actual home? Well, the, when we arrived there, the soldier settlement block was given for people coming out of the armed forces, out of the defence forces. And it was it's what Jill Kirk Conway's father had as well. It was to give them a chance when they came back from the war to get started with a piece of property, particularly those people who'd lost their properties during the Depression. And it was done by a ballot. My father, one of them, it was a thousand acres. It was fenced because it was actually a paddock of a very large holding. Thousand Acres is quite a big paddock, but mm-hmm. uh, so he had to. So his dream was he just have sheep, but didn't have a, a residence on it, and we didn't, he didn't have any money. I mean, he'd been working as a manager on a property, but you know that we had a little house in Goulburn, and he was out in on, you know thirty miles away. So and he came home at the weekends. So it was a really difficult time, I think, because to take occupation of the place, we put up tents. Um, my mother used an outside copper. She would never have seen one before that. Um, and it was, I think it must have been very hard and she had a six weeks old baby. Mm. Oh, maybe she was six months. Uh, and so I think that, anyway, and then we converted some shearers huts on another property into a house and then we got, then we got a home. And we were very excited when we got a new home, which was probably about three years later. Um, and my mother was very good at, she could make something out of nothing. She could make clothes and she could make, you know, she had a good, great eye for design and style. We've never had a home that she hadn't made look good. So that was home. And so as a child, just before that time, um, were you in any way hands on, um, within the farm and how many brothers and sisters did you have? Um, one brother and one sister and was our hands on on the farm well I mean we, we, we yes we in a mice plague we used to catch the mice and throw them to the dogs <laughs> That's <a> revolting thought <laughs> with your bare um, hands but we had yes but we had <laughs> well no we weren't allowed near the machinery um, on the tractor I mean we could be on the tractor sometimes but and and in terms of you know we would watch shearing and so on but we weren't particularly hands-on we had ponies and that was the thing that we did the most. And my case, you know, read a lot of books. It, it was a, it, there was a lot of tension in the family because on, on the times when my father was drinking. And when mm. he wasn't drinking, everything was magical. Mm. Um, and that's often the story of alcoholics. So there was always a tension there and there was always a sense that we had to protect my mother from his anger. As, as children, me particularly as the eldest child because my sister was eight years younger and my brother was four years younger i was the one who'd sort of keep the peace and and try and make sure that there were no 
signs that, that would provoke him into losing control of himself and shouting and so on. Because up to this day, I hate shouting. I hate people shouting at me. People shout at me, I just would, I would walk away and I would very rarely shout back. I'd just disappear. It was, and that, you know, that was a survival mechanism. Isn't it incredible what you're, what you're able to know as a child without without knowing? Like you knew right. what to do. You've yes. never been taught. It's just yes. survival instinct. That's right. That's right. What was the onset of your father's alcoholism? Well, first of all, my mother didn't like talking about it. No one likes talking about these things. So I'm the curiosity kid and think, why does he do this? But it would seem, I think, that it, well, it's certainly not unusual for people in the, the army to be drinking. Mm. But I think before that, when they had the property at Canamble, where they all lived and were born in that family, the Ryans, um, they had a little house in Orange for the girls to live in so they could go to school at PLC. And when the Depression came and they lost the property, my father took the stock with a team of drovers, drove them to Orange, where the best place to sell them was, and fattened them along the stock routes. That was the plan. He would have been about 14 or 15 then. And so he was on the road with drovers as a boy and they, they drank. And they drank spirits. They drank, you know, they, they were, you weren't going to get a cold beer along the way. Yeah. So they drank rum and brandy. My guess would be that would have been that would have been the beginning of a lot of alcohol in his life. I understand that, and then going into being one of the boys in the um, the light horse, which was the regiment he was in. Um, I think you know the drinking would have continued, and my mother would probably not have realised that, because like many alcoholics, you know there were two parts to him when he was drunk. And, and it got worse with, with pressure, clearly. And then, of course, when he, when, even when he moved to near Goulburn, he was out on his own with blokes in, you know, in a very lonely place um, and with brumbies and a lot of sheep. Uh, so he wasn't really suited to domestic life, really. I, I, that, that's my, you know, that's mm. the layer I put on that now. Mm. Thinking, he was wild. Yeah, yes. But he was, and and he wasn't well educated. But he was extremely well read. He read everything: Shakespeare, poetry, amazing novels. It's another thing that's so interesting. How does that happen? Mm. No adult education programs or anything like that. How how does he find that? How did yeah. he find those books? And mm. and how, how could he read them and understand them? Yes, yes. And and how could he quote them? Do you think he influenced your love of reading? Oh, yes, yes. And, and my mother loved reading too. There were always magazines or books or newspapers and reading was considered a really important part of our lives, yes. What did your horizons look like through a child's eyes? I mean, what did you think you would, what did you want to become? I find it very curious to answer this question because I really didn't think much until I was about, 14 or 15 about what I could or would be. Hmm. My mother's friends in the district, the, lo the local people around us, there were two women who had had careers, one um, in running a nursing unit at Manly Hospital and another one who'd come out of the wireless control in the Air Force. I think nursing was the thing then that I thought that I would be and 
and I loved I loved the woman's stories. She used to tell stories endlessly of what happened in the nursing wards and so on. And I, well, the wireless control, I felt was a bit dull. Um, mm. But I did did think that that's what that's probably what I would be. And I stayed with that then, from probably from the age of about thirteen to really until I went to university at sixteen. Yes. And what about did you think one day I will become a mother? Considering the domestic difficult well, domestic I don't think I thought I would or I wouldn't. I think the assumptions were that every woman would become get married and have children. Yes. And I didn't see any reason to question that and I wasn't that interested to be frank. I was interest, more interested in playing hockey and um, running and jumping and swimming and reading and doing well at school and I'm I'm a person who tends to live who thinks and plans in the for the future in a way but mostly I'm quite in in the present. I'm sorry to backstep a little bit but I do want to ask you about that time when your father died. You say that you felt relief but also guilt um, at feeling that relief and I just wonder how you changed in that moment um, and with that sense of relief and um, the burden was released but also I suppose you learned that you really were responsible for you. There was, um, I don't know, you were out of the, the clutches of the family nest. I think um, we hadn't seen my father for about 12 months and he was living with his mother in Orange, <clears throat> or his um, sister-in-law, his sister, Manildra. And I'd had letters from him, he'd written to me, but he was really on his own and it was a rock bottom. And when he when he died, the first thing he said is, I want Wendy and Bet to come to me right now. And so we drove to Orange and um, by the time, just as we got there, they said he'll have to go to Sydney to hospital. So he went off in an ambulance and we drove back. And he was remorseful and tearful and we stayed with him for a few hours and then they told us to go home and then an hour later they rang and said he died. And for me there was just this sense of, oh my God, at last there's peace for him Mm. and there's peace for us. We just don't have to manage this stuff all the time. We're always feeling worried about him but if we go and see him, it doesn't work. And if we stay away, we feel bad. And for my mother, who had decided after agonising that she was going to leave him and she'd had initial conversations with a lawyer, I think it was a very big relief. It was much better to be a widow than a divorcee. Divorcee is still a bad word, not in the way it was then, but for a young woman, you know, a widow, I don't like the word of it, using the word widow myself, which I am, of course, now, but it's the sense of a widow and three children is a much more compassionate thought than a divorcee with three children. It, it's just a language thing mm. and it's an image thing. Mm-hmm. And it, it freed her to start a new life and it freed me to start a new life and let her get on with her life. And that was the moment, I think. It was a very big moment in a way that, um, you know, I, I had to support myself completely and it was much easier for her to do that. You know, my brother went to boarding school in Farah, at Farah, and she then would have one, my sister Deborah, at home. 
and it would be much better for her to find a life of just two people and then the rest of us in holiday time. SG Offroad understand it all. They've been stuck on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere with little kids in tow. They've rushed around to get vehicles into servicing, forgotten booked dates and understand the importance of having someone to help take care of the problem. SG Offroad are the little guys gone big. Founded in 2002, they put the humanity back into your vehicle's needs, mixing impeccable automotive care with an incredible empathy for who's behind the wheel and daily life. An ARB stockist with two stores in South Gippsland and a huge range of courtesy vehicles, they're available for their customers no matter what. Whether in their workshops, driveway, stuck in the paddock, or even with electrical issues on the Tanami track. Whether it's leaning against the bull bar for a yarn, or rocking a brightly coloured conversation starting shirt for mental health, there's rarely anything they say no to when it comes to vehicles and those that drive them. Beyond the wheel bearings and the four-wheel drive setups, SG Offroad are more than just mechanics and accessories. They become a slice of people's lives and truly love what they do. SG Offroad. Just get life. Yeah, so by this... Um, stage in your life you'd experienced so many um, I suppose you learned so many undesirable traits of um, males and how important those um, decisions could be and how detrimental certain behaviors could be and do you think that you were aware of um, your feministic way forward at that stage no, it was no. no, and 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 you know the, pro, the 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 plan in front of those scholarships and that life at university, New England, you know, delivered excellent teachers to the New South Wales Department of Education. So there was a pride in that as a profession, quite different from now. T- teaching was a pretty honourable. I think it still is, but it was an admired and honourable profession. I didn't know you know, whether I'd like it until the moment I hit the classroom and then there was never any doubt for me that I would be a very, a very, very happy teacher. And so how long did you teach for, Wendy? I taught three years in Sydney. It was my first single-sex school, a girls' school, Cremorne Girls High. Um, I then taught for two years in London, um, again, a girls' school, and then a year in Pittsburgh at a girls' school, so in the US, so six years straight. And then when I came back, bits and pieces, um, I had a bits and pieces career. I had three babies in five years. Um, and with those, uh, and when I started to get some part-time work, I taught at a girls' school, Winona. And then in between that, before I went back to work full-time, I had eight years really living in the community, coming and going and bits and pieces, reading manuscripts, you know, just sort of odd jobs. We're getting to know the community. And the one thing that it's really worth saying for to younger people or just to this audience, never underestimate the value of knowing how communities work because it's been a constant 
different a point of difference between me and other people who might have done some of the jobs I've done. So for example, the founding of the Women's Electoral Lobby. As a teacher, I knew about education and learning. But because I'd been eight years in a community and I'd never really lived in a community before because I'd always been working in one, it's different. Mm. You know, I knew who spoke to whom and I, I knew what people thought and Often, I mean, and to this day, when I get invited to things with working with a whole lot of men, the men don't really know the stories in the community. And so when men started coming into areas of human services and so on, they were quite a long way behind many of the women who delivered those services in the community. I didn't realise that for some time, but I certainly realised it post-60 when I, when I was being asked to do jobs on boards and so on. The life of a woman with children and in a community and at work is very different from the life of a man. It's the women who are the heart of the community, even when there are men who they might do little athletics and those sorts of things, but it's, and that's particularly true for my generation. And we knew where the gaps were in the community and where, you know, where they needed to be plugged, whether it was, you know, one of the first community things that um, I did was working to make sure that um, fathers could be present at birth. But the next version of that really was making sure that parents could be with their children in hospital until then you dropped a child at the hospital door and they said, come back tomorrow. And people forget that. It's very final, especially if it goes wrong in the hospital and you're not there. It's a terrifying thought. Yep. Now, the mores that exist in communities are something that women who live in communities for periods of time understand, and that's particularly true in rural areas, too, I think. When you do look at it through the lens of uh, women living in rural yep. and remote areas and considering the sort of um, the... I don't know how to even describe it, that it's just becoming more popular, that boundaries are most certainly being broken down and women living there are getting opportunities that they once never had access to. Is That's that wonderful. what, isn't Absolutely it? Wonderful. It's such a wonderful thing to see. And, you know, and if I could drive back to Orange and I've got relatives in Orange and I've got relatives, you know, in Tamworth and Gurindai and places, and I look at them and they, you know, that they're a two-career couple. And children can be there or they can go away to school, but, you know, they have options there that they didn't have before. There might be some services lacking, particularly health services for women in rural areas, but the truth is they're much like, more likely to be a teen. It's easier to be a teen, I think. And when Gordon decided, my husband decided to leave Sydney and want to be a full-time farmer, that was perfect from my point of view because... I, I would live, I, di I didn't want to be a full-time farmer, but I wanted to have that farm. Mm. So doing the deal of, you know, that I'd stay in the city and do the things that I wanted to do and that, um, and he would go to the farm and be, do the things that he wanted to do was a, a, a fabulous way to have a marriage for the last 30 years of his life. And what would you say to women who might be interested in leadership or they're ambitious or they um, are not happy like you were just to settle for the status quo, who live in rural and regional areas, how do they get themselves to where you are? 
Well, I think there are lots of pathways. Uh, I think the, the, the two fundamental um, things for women is, is health and education. Um, and you don't get too far these days. I know there's always the exception. But by and large, formal education, understanding, understanding the rules of the system. I was at this wonderful moment in America a few years ago where one of the Supreme Court justices, Sonia Sotomayor, was walking around and Ruth Bader Ginsburg was there and, and talking about, you know, why you do law so that you understood the rules of your life and understood how the transactions and contracts and all those sort of things work. And these little girls who are about 15 were just, you know, absolutely agog at the idea that a lawyer had a practical um, application to their lives. And I think for women to be educated and to is, is the first step to a life of health and fulfilment. And I think for, for women to, to be healthy and find the right partner and where you can you can negotiate a, a way to do it. So in my case, I was able, you know, we lived in the cities. Um, we're both country people, but we lived, he came from Yass. Um, he always wanted to be a farmer. And strangely, my mother always wanted me to marry a grazier. I married an economist and a chartered accountant who eventually became the farmer and the beef producer. And he was a person who applied his brain and his education to farming. And he was a very, very good farmer. And he had struggles with health because he'd had leukaemia. And he knew that farming would be a way to maintain, help maintain his health. He said, I want to get up when the sun comes up and go to bed when the sun comes down. That's not a life to live in an urban place. But I wasn't going to change my career. And apart from that, if he died suddenly, as it was predicted, I would have been left with the family as the sole um, income and that would have been quite hard. You were managing your risk. Yeah, I was managing my risk. And um, and, and people can be unkind and, and equally they can be kind, but people saying, oh, you know, why don't you stay home with him when he's sick? And I said, well, frankly, the last thing he needs is me mooning around the place on his bad days. He needs to be on his own and, and sleeping and knowing he He's got access to whatever he needs whenever he needs it. That was the way we worked it out and shared it. I, I wanted think the first question that you you asked me about, you know, what advice I would give to uh, women. I would say that for women living in rural and remote Australia now, there's never been a better time to be entrepreneurial or to be a woman who would like to live work with systems like teaching or nursing which I still think are the most honourable of professions. You'll have to change some of the rules because then it's not good enough at the moment. You don't get paid enough. The conditions aren't good enough. But the only way you do that is by getting in there and working for it. No point in sitting in the armchair and complaining. You've just absolutely got to do it. And rural health is a hot topic and there's never been a better time to leverage it. And we need better rural education. And that means the public system has to be um, beefed up and the public nursing, nursing system. The market can't do everything. It's part of the system. But you need the market and you need the state. I'd love to get a little bit of advice from you on how to change the rules. And the, top, the, the title of your book is Don't Be Too Polite, Girls. So 
how do you manage yourself when you do get to the stage where you have important the ear of important people who are, can change policy and influence? Well, I put my case. I'm quite confident that I'll have done my homework, but I'm not going to get that ear unless somebody wants to listen. And the, the, the other reason people might see me is because someone said they had to. So I have a limited time to, to bring that person to a different point of view. But the other thing is you have to rely on colleagues. No, no one does change by themselves, Sky, never. There's always an army of people around and some like visibility and some don't. Just moving towards this election, you know, there are half a dozen women's groups who don't have a high profile but are, ga are gaining profile who are trying to change particular parts of the system. We don't all have to be out on the front line. So I just think it, you have to have a tribe and you have to have, and, and, and when you get the tribe, I mean, a lot of the women who work together on that program probably hadn't been together in any continuous way for 30 years. But we just all came back because we felt it was unfinished business mm. and it had to change because women were at risk of criminal and, and, and health providers, doctors were at risk. And you could see what's happening in the rest of the world. But that's also the product of an educated mind. So those women, they were the first group of women, the really biggest first cohort of women who had university education. And sometimes it's just being kind and listening and just thinking, Know, turn the problem upside down and just think about it and back to consequences what's the worst thing that could happen something goes wrong with the farm she's not going to send it broke overnight she'll learn on the job and if you're perfect you don't have to do anything really you let mm. someone else have a go so be polite but but not too polite are you i i've heard you well, say it's about polite is a is a funny word really because and it's mostly used with women um, to be polite. I mean, I was raised to be a polite girl. It was seen as a kind of virtue to be seen and not heard. Um, and my mother's greatest fear was that I'd be bold. Um, and bold is the exact opposite of polite in that sort of lexicon. But we have to learn um, that being polite does not mean that we have to make nice to people and pretend that we agree with them. And that's what you did when you were seen and not heard. So the person who was speaking to you and making assumptions might, could well easily have gone away and thought you agreed. But actually you were seething mm. at the fact that you didn't want to challenge that person or you didn't think it was polite or appropriate to do so. Well, I think we've passed that stage now. We have to pass that stage and we have to realise that if we don't use our voices, people won't, won't, know, won't know what we think, they won't understand what our value is and we have to learn to express it. And that, in my family, could have meant that you were up yourself, and that was another bad thing. Mm. But, you have to, that, but that's our responsibility. It's not anybody else's. In a conversation, we have to learn that that is our responsibility. So you don't have to be rude. You just don't, don't have to stand down someone, stare down someone. And so maybe finally a word from you on on respect and how you maintain respect but still get your word across? I think respect is the most important word in this year's election. I think respect means that you listen to people. I think that there should be respect in public discourse. 
I hate the name calling and slagging of people. I think you have to have respect in order to be fit to feel safe. And, and respect for follow through, you know, that your word should count. I mean, we've been looking at the government's way of judging the report by Kate Jenkins' respect at work. And it is that sense of social agency of a person. They have the respect, they can manage their, their sort of emotional autonomy. They have a point of view. They should have a space to be heard. And, and that's the sort of respect that you give them. And if you put that through our system and you thought about respect, safety follows, and it allows you to have some sort of equity in the system as well because you have self-respect then and you can pursue your own dreams. My last, last question is, um, so, and I just, I would just love to know how you feel about all these issues of equality and um, women, you know, the things that you've been fighting for, you have been fighting for for decades and you're still fighting for them. So abortion on demand, um, free childcare, equal pay. Aren't you frustrated? Oh, on bad days I could have a tantrum, but basically, <laughs> no, no. Look, I think, I think somewhere around about turning 60, I realised that what we'd imagined when we were thought we were putting these, settling these issues in the 80s and the 90s actually wasn't the case because politicians come in and change the way they see it and the laws can often change. So it wasn't incremental with an ending. It was a different thing. So it, you, it means you have to be vigilant. You have to be an engaged citizen. And then you can make judgments and you can garner respect if you're an engaged citizen. And you, and, and you need to know that when the rules change, that you have to, if you don't like the way they change, you've got to work out how you change them back again. We're a long way ahead of where we were in the 60s. Um, I mean, the biggest thing is the fact that we've got reproductive rights and many women in the world do not have them. And taking abortion off the criminal code was a hugely significant thing in terms of it's a health matter between a woman and her doctor. Don't use abortion on demand as a word anymore, a phrase, please. Just say it. abortion is now a health matter between a woman and her doctor. And we don't have equal pay. I think that is a huge disadvantage. And we still know that the feminised workplaces of teaching and nursing are the least paid. And we don't, do not have appropriate early learning opportunities for our younger citizens. And that is the thing, most of all, that, that I'm going to spend time on now. I mean, I have been doing it for the last, most of my life, but I'm really going to have another good go at that in the next time because when I look at rural areas and I look at the map of what they call the early learning deficit, they're almost all in rural areas where you cannot get a space and it's too expensive and a child who arrives at school without a decent early learning program at least one year experience and preferably at least two is behind and almost never catches up and the research is now settled you cannot afford i mean there are some households there that are very well off and can do those things but that doesn't give a child a group experience learning to be a member of a group and that's a profoundly important thing i mean once we used to say that babies um didn't know what was going on. And now we know that babies know a lot more about what's going on in the room than we thought. Mm. And we, you know, that, and that they do parallel play and they 
move towards each other in a way that we've never seen because we've got cameras and gears that show us those things and we can you know we're better educated but we need to give our children a chance and that's in the national interest but um, we've got some very even a really learned person said to me the other day oh childcare is too affordable early learning it's not affordable and I said it, it, it can never be affordable and I said well they said that about education then we had state systems you know it's only mm. just about moving it mm. so that's well, probably it really <laughs> well I could keep talking to you Wendy but I know that you have to go so I just um I feel so lucky to have spoken with you and learned from you and Thank you for giving us some time on our Life on the Land podcast. And I just love the way that you've got crazy her. <laughs> I think it's so clever. Yes, yes. Okay. I feel like I say this a lot, but the more women I interview, the more I realise happily that there are so many different forms of and faces of feminism in this country and as each year progresses more and more women are learning in the best ways that they can to show their own feministic side as an aside it's mother's day in less than a week this year, Grazy Her and Life on the Land are releasing a special Mother's Day podcast celebrating in spoken words what our mothers mean to us, the influences they've had on our lives and the special things that we loved about the women that raised us. We want you to record a short telegram celebrating everything that is or was wonderful about your mum and email it to hello at grazyher.com.au. All it takes is really three easy steps. Number one, write your telegram. Number two, record it into a voice memo on your phone. And number three, email it to hello at grazyher.com.au. We'll compile your special love letters in an extended Life on the Land podcast to be released next week. And if you're running short on Prezi ideas, a Grazy Her subscription is always a good idea. Check it out at grazyher.com.au, including our latest little extra, a gorgeous, gorgeous smelling Grampian Goods Co. candle, grazyher.com.au. This is a production of the Manson Podcasting Network. We'll be back with you next week with another Life on the Land story. Mm-hmm.